Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, today we're going to um, uh, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter five. You want to turn Joshua five, and we're going to continue with this um, first things first, and we're going to specifically look at Joshua chapter five, verse ten. 10 through 15. Now, thinking about first things first, let me let me kind of build this thing up because last week we talked about part one on first things first, and life is filled with first things first. But Joshua now, in the next chapter, he and the gang are going to now be called to take the very first city in the promised land. They're going to go at Jericho. Now remember, as they've been traveling to the desert, they're battling nomadic tribes here and there. But now when they come into the promised land, and now the Jordan River's parted, they're in, there's no turning back now, this is it. Have you ever stepped out, and you're like, there's no turning back now, this is it. And that's where they're at. And Jericho is a walled city. And cities in those days, defend-wise, they're up on tells. You ever heard the word Tel Aviv, right? Tel Aviv. That just means like a little plateau. You're going up a hill, so that's a tell. And so they're up on tells. And so to take a city... You have to climb the tell first, and then you're going to get a wall, and you're going to find out that most good cities, strong cities, are double-walled. And so this is going to be a real tough thing to take. And so Joshua now has come to that spot where they're now going to enter into a battle that they have not fought before. They've done these other things through the desert, fighting nomadic tribes, but this is going to be a whole different ballgame. And so now it's got to be first things first. God says, before you do that, Here's some things you got to do. And first things first, I'm sure most would agree if you, you, you know this, that there's first things first in life that you have to do. Anybody who's successful in life does the first things first, correct? I mean, you just do the stuff that you just need to do. I mean, I know in my life I, that, that there's first things first. If you stood up and shared your first things first, which you're not because I'm the preacher, but I'm going to share. Um, my first things first is I always have to be very disciplined in my studies um, I always try to be three weeks ahead on all my Sunday teaching, so there's three weeks done ahead of time. I try to be two to, if not three weeks ahead, done with my Tuesday night teachings. I also have the men's breakfast once a month, so that's always looming in the back of my mind. So I try to be start on that three weeks before the moment, and I'm building my thoughts and everything to finally put it all together. And then I have side things that I have to do within the ministry, and like Monday, I'm teaching a leadership for our staff, so I've got to, I put that together. And so there's always things that have to be done. And if I don't do these things, then I'm going to fail. So I can't do all the fun things. I've got to do the hard things first. And we all know what that is, right? That's called delayed gratification. Even we were talking earlier tonight on my day off and your day off, you have to get things done that have to be done, right? You, you have to get it done. So I know for me... There's things that have to get done. There's yard work has to be done, things. And when I get that done, then I can go and enjoy the rest of my day. Successful people understand that that's what has to be done. You do the first things first before you get to do the fun things. If you decide in your life that you're going to reverse that and do all the fun things first, you're going to put off all the difficult needed things and then they're going to pile up and pile up and it's like a kid who doesn't do his homework and the night before the, everything's due then you start doing your homework well how many know that's too late now right and you're going to fail that thing so God says there's these first things 
And we, we, we followed about four or five of them last week of first things. Now, we're going to continue on in this whole idea of first things. And really, if you think about it, they're, they're, they're kind of things that you have to remember. And, there's, and I'll put it this way, even though each one says first and then the line in your notes. You have to remember these things, things that you need to take with you every day and not forget. So we're in Josh 5, verse uh, 10. And let's pick up from there. And we're only going to cover like five or six verses tonight. And it says this. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. So now you, once again, you see that they're right outside Jericho. I think they're like probably two miles away. And uh, it's, the, uh, it's the 14th day of the month. And last week, we told you when that is. Because remember, they had a civil calendar from the get-go as they progressed as a nation starting back in Genesis, because we know the ark landed on the seventh month, 17th day on Mount Ararat, seventh month in the civil calendar is April. But the first month, which is here, of the new religious calendar, that same month, first month is actually April also. So you got to know when it's the, each calendar is, is being talked about. This is the religious calendar. It's April 14th. And April 14th, here at this time, it's Passover time. And they're going to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover was instituted, remember, right before they left Egypt. And then we see they celebrated it one more time. It's in um, Numbers, Numbers chapter 9. But we don't ever read that they ever celebrated Passover again until right now. Now, let's rehearse a few things. At Passover, we found out in um, Exodus chapter 12 that they would pick the lamb on April the 10th, the 10th day of the month. They would keep that lamb for four days. It would become the family pet. And the children and the family would grow to love that pet. Now, there's reasoning behind that, and that is this, that at the fourth day, that little family lamb, that little pet is going to be sacrificed to cover their sins for one year, right? And so think about that. You have this family pet, and it's going to be sacrificed. What are the kids going to feel when you say, well, the, that we have to sacrifice that, that family pet? They're going to feel tragic. I remember, and everybody's, most of us have done this, when I put my dog down a year, almost two years ago, my little boy Max, that was the worst day in my life in a long, long time. I dreaded it. I remember sitting in the backyard and sitting with him. I left work early because I'm just going to sit with him for a couple hours because this is it for me. I've had him 14 years, and it was, it was terrible. It, it took me back to when I was like 13. And this is why I never wanted a dog again because I lost my dog when I was 13. I didn't want to go through that again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so I remember taking him down to, to the vet, and it was all set up and the appointment and took him in there, and it was just time. You know, he, had, he, just, was, he just had a lot of things going on. And then they injected him, and I just held him, and I was crying, and I was in there for like 10, 15 seconds holding him, and I, I really, I couldn't do it anymore, and I said, I just got to get out of this room, and I left the room because it was painful to watch my, my little Max die, because you guys, everybody knows that your, your, your pet, no matter what's happening in the world, no matter who's come against you, you go home, and that little pet is even killed and always loves you, right? So it never gives you any problems, so there's a real connection right there. And so think about having a family pet. Now, think about it in the Passover. The children now are going to lose the family pet they've had for four days. But there's the reason behind it is this. They had to grow to love that pet because once that pet is going to be sacrificed, they had to understand firsthand the feel and the know of how painful sacrifice is. 
And see, for them, that was that lamb, and they would take the lamb, obviously, and pay, put the blood over the doorpost and lintel. Angel of death would pass over, and the firstborn would be saved. But for you and I, it's the same thing. We have to come to the realization regularly of how painful that sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for us on that cross, correct? Very painful. If you think about it, a way to put it is, why is God hanging on a cross and dying? That doesn't make any sense, logically, but it does make perfect sense from a perspective of sin and God and everything else in that he's come, first off, to enter into our pain and our suffering. Any amens on that? But he's also come to save us. And so this first point, I don't know if I give it to you yet. Maybe I jump past it. First, never forget you are redeemed people. Redeemed people. Now, I said all that. I should have said all that. I should have said redeemed people, then given you everything I just gave you. So let me explain what I'm talking about. That Passover now that they're going to celebrate, is to remind them that they're redeemed, that they're redeemed people. Now, if you want to, if you would, follow me on this one, and let's keep our marker here, and let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Now, when you're in Romans 3, say, hey, my neighbor's in Romans 3 or something like that. Now, watch this. Um, Paul, the great writer, New Testament church planter, all through the Mediterranean, he says, he writes this. He says in Romans 3, 23 and 24, we're, sp- we're speaking on redemption now. He says, for all have sinned, and how many is all? All, all means all, and that's all, all means. Remember that all the time. And fall short of the glory of God. So everybody on the planet falls short of God's glory. And what is God's glory? The glory of God is everything that God is. We just fall short. We miss the mark. Being justified, say justified, Justified, remember, means what? Declared innocent, that I'm declared innocent of every sin in my life, everything I've ever done wrong, every mess up, every wrong thought, every wrong this, it's been washed away, and I'm declared innocent of everything. I stand firm on the fact that in the blood of Jesus, I'm in right standing with God at all times, and nothing can change that one bit. Amen to that one? And once you start getting that, it's going to change the way you walk, the way you carry yourself. You'll never let anybody put you down to think you're a nobody or this and that. Nuh-uh. Read on. It says, justified as a gift by His grace. Grace is the favor of God that I don't deserve and you don't deserve. But then it says, through the redemption, say redemption. And that is in Jesus Christ. It's not in other things. It's in Jesus Christ. Now, redemption. What does that word actually mean? Because we read it and we could say it. We could tell somebody we're redeemed. But what does it actually mean? The idea of the word means this. That the person who's been redeemed has been purchased from the slave market and they have been set free forever in their life. And so now you see the picture of the Passover and being set free from the Egyptian bondage in Egypt. Remember that when the chariots were coming and God talks to Moses at the Red Sea, he tells Moses, these Egyptians you see today, you will never see them again forever. It's over. You're going to be set free forever. It's it's what it is. And as a Christian, that's one of the things we need to remember. That once you and I put our faith in Christ, that blood that he shed on the cross, that price that he paid, it set you and it set me free from sin all of our life, forever. We're never in bondage anymore. We never have to be in bondage anymore because that act on the cross, what he did, cut, cut the cord and we're set free. Now watch this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now watch this one right here. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking of Jesus and Passover, I just want to share this one with you and then hit it and say a few things and, and, then, and then watch. It talks about Jesus because we're talking about Passover. Verse 7 says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ is our what? Louder, our what? Passover also has been sacrificed. So now we find out that Christ is our Passover. Now, what would the animal would they use and sacrifice for Passover? A what? A lamb. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus Christ that one day coming to be baptized, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now you see, and by the way, did you know that the day that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on that young colt that day, coming in as the Lamb of God to be inspected for four days by the Pharisees, eventually to be the Passover Lamb crucified? Do you know on that same day he's riding in that the Bethlehem shepherds would be driving in their thousands of sheep through a different gate through Jerusalem to be sold to families to be used for the Passover lamb sacrifices? Did you know it's happening on the same day? He's riding in one way, and they're coming in by the thousands another way. And so he's riding in to be ours, our lamb, our sacrifice for our sins, to negate and to stop the old way of all these lambs that had to be sacrificed every year just to cover. God would, if the idea is God winked. He closed his eye at sin for one year. Never forgave us but he, he would close his eye to it, to us. And so here comes Jesus, and he's the Passover. And we need never forget that because we've been redeemed by what he has done. Now, let's go back to Joshua. Joshua 5, 11, and 12, and it says this. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Verse 12. The manna ceased, on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during, um, during that year. Now, uh, the next verse is this. First things first. The next verse, point two, is break all ties with Egypt. Break all ties with Egypt. Say it again. Break all ties with Egypt. Now, break all ties. Now, 40 years, manna is falling. Man is falling for 40 years. And then now they're there, and manna ceases. And now it doesn't fall anymore after 40 years. We'll get into how much that is just in a second. Now, Passover, when they celebrate that, that reminds them of their deliverance from Egypt. But the manna reminded them of their desire to go back to Egypt. It always was a reminder of that, because the question is, why did God give them manna in the first place? Because they were complaining. They were griping. Oh, Egypt was so much better. And so they desired the things of Egypt, and so God gives them manna. So manna is a symbol to remind them that, remember your desires? You wanted to go back? And manna simply means the, the what is it. You know, when they manna, what, manna what, it means what is it. Now, let's keep our marker here, and let's go to Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus 16... We're going to see one of the examples, just one of the examples of their complaining because they did complain a lot. And if I were Moses, I think I would have just said, see you guys later, I'm out of here or something like that. Because man, they just, boy, they complain. Now when you're in Exodus 16, now let's, let's, let me read 1, 2, 3, and 4. It says this. Then they set out from Elam. Now, it's really hard for me just to read a verse and not give you more into it. Now, back up if, so you understand where they're leaving, okay? Just give them a little bit of a break. 
Um, look one verse back in chapter 15. Verse 27, it gives you Elam. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there besides the water. So question, is it a nice place? You better believe it. Now watch. Now chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt. Well, we know the first month is when they departed. And so now we see they're one month in. They're just, guys, they're one month into leaving Egypt on their way to the promise. That's all it's been. It's been one month. Verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, here's what they're telling Moses. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Now, let me show you how self-deceived we can be. Because we're all like this. Watch what they say. Back in Egypt, they say, When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. You really think they sat by pots full of meat and had bread to the full? You know that in Numbers, when they complain, they add this line. They say that we ate for free. Oh, really? The 430 years of bondage, they ate for free, huh? And they're just giving you scraps, man. You see how, how self-deceived we can be? Here's, here's what the, the old way, thinking about the old way, it can really deceive us, can it not? We can think it was a lot better than it really was. But if we really think about it, the old way is not the best way. If you really think about it. So let's read on here. We ate bread of the full. And then they tell him, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, here's what they're telling Moses. We know your true motive now. Your motive was always, let's do all the miracles, part the Red Sea, the Passover deal, then we'll get out in the desert, and this is where you brought us, because your whole motive was just to kill us all. How ridiculous is that, right? Now, but crazy breeds crazy, right? And then verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So now, God says, Now I'm going to bring down this bread from heaven, this manna. And so manna now is given because they complained and had their desire to go back to Egypt for food, so God says, I'm going to give you food, so you don't have a, a desire or a temptation to go back to Egypt, so manna is always that thing that's going to remind them of their old desire to go back to Egypt, you could take the person out of Egypt, but it's hard to take the Egypt out of the person, right, very difficult to take Egypt out of the person, now, so they've been delivered from these things, and they're not supposed to go back, that's the whole point of first things first, now, uh, turn back to Josh, but let me tell you a little bit about manna. Manna, the manna fell for 40 years. It fell every day except on the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath, they had to collect twice as much as normal. And they were to collect one omer per person a day. It's roughly six pints. But that would last for the two days. Now, as they collect the one omer per person every day, there's roughly two million people. That's a lot of people, right? For this bread from heaven to fall down. So it's 12, 12 million pints of manna a day. And so you add that all together, every day what's falling from heaven 
is 4,500 tons of manna every day for 40 years. And it didn't stop until the day that they step in to the promised land. You think you'd ever get sick of manna? <laughs> they did. How many banana splits can you have? You know, it's like, <laughs> I know, I know. But I think the worst is they probably got tired of manu, though, and all that kind of stuff, you know. You know them. Yeah, you try this, okay? Or, so, um, but here they get to the, <laughs> I know, they get to the promised land, and uh, it stops. And now they're eating the produce of the land. Now, this is a very, I, I, I think it's a big deal. Because before, God is just dropping it right to where they're at. Now they're in the promised land, and the, the food's there. We know that from previous testimonies of these, the spies. And, but now they got to go get it, right? It's there, but they got to go get it. This is a maturity step. And this is a step every human has to take in their life. You can't have people do everything for you and expect that. If you want to stay a baby all your life, stay a baby. But that's just not going to work for getting anywhere in life. So you have to finally say, okay, now it's time for me to go out and get it. Now it's time for me to go out and do something with my life. Now it's time for me to take responsibility for me. You see, when Jesus said, um, you look at the birds, when he's talking about you know, God providing for you, he says, look at the birds. In other words, think, use your mind, look at the birds. God provides for them. Now, does God drop bird seed right there in their nest? No, but God puts some food out there in the community somewhere and the birds go looking for what God has provided out there, does he not? So the same thing with us humans. We have to go get those things that God has placed in our heart to become whatever you're going to be in life, to go do these things. It's growing up time. And there's times in our life that we have to just finally sit there and say, okay, I can't be a child anymore. I got to grow up. I can't blame this person. I got to grow up. I got to take responsibility for me. So the manna stops. And now they got to do their own home cooking. Look, anybody like eating out? I like eating out. And church is like eating out, is it not? It's a good eating out. Come to church Sunday, come to church Tuesday, you're eating out. But the best food you're going to eat, I like when Olivia makes the tacos and guacamole and the salsa. And that, I love the home cooking way better. And, and, and that's the same thing. Have you ever noticed when you read your Bible, study for yourself, the home cooking's better, isn't it? You shouldn't have said that. You should say my preaching's better. No, I'm joking. But yeah, it's just good stuff because you're getting so much good stuff and you have to take responsibility for yourself and now feed yourself and not just depend on everybody else to feed you all the time. Take those times in your life just to do those things, okay? And that's, that's a maturity step. Now, let's look at verses 13, 14, 15. These are three amazing little visitation of God verses. Now watch, and we're gonna... Once I read it, I'm going to give you four points, four firsts off this as we go along. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho. So he reaffirms, Joshua's right there. That he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him. So all of a sudden, this guy appears with his sword drawn. The guy's got a sword in his hand, and it's not in the sheath. Drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? That's a great question. Verse 14. He said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? 
You don't call anybody Lord but God. The captain, you don't humble yourself before anybody but God. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. We've, we know about that before, right? So, okay. So here we go. So Joshua, he is standing. I don't know how close. Maybe he's drifted off by himself, getting closer to Jericho. I don't know. But this guy, all of a sudden a man appears. And this man has a sword drawn. So Joshua is a warrior, is he not? So Joshua, you know, in this situation... He goes up to the man, and he confronts the man. Are you for us or against us? And the man says, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. That's a big statement. I'm the captain. It's, it's warrior uh, army type terms. I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. Joshua instantly recognizes. He falls to the ground and basically begins to worship this, this person there. Now, there's a lot of stuff in here, but my first thing is this. Joshua's not afraid of the man, is he? Because he walks right up to the man and says, are you for us or against us? Now, why is Joshua not afraid of the man standing there with the sword drawn? Why is he not afraid? Let me tell you what I think. And this is a, I, I think I'm right on this one. Look back at Joshua chapter 1 again, a verse we've seen multiple times now as we've studied Joshua. Look at chapter 1 and verse 5. Remember what, Josh, what God told Joshua, he says, verse 5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. So now Joshua, remember, he's been told by God, just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. So Joshua's standing there. There's a man, as far as he knows, holding a sword. And God said, well, no man can stand before me. So I think that Joshua's unafraid because God told me that no man is going to stand before me or stop me all the days of my life. And so I'm going to walk right up to this guy and ask you, who are you for? You for us or you for them? Now, let's get into the four first because first things first. Number three first, God reaffirms his promise to Joshua in a personal way. In a personal way. Because we've just read in verse 1 through 1 verse 5, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Huh. So God speaks to Moses, becomes very personal with Moses, does he not? Yes or no? Yeah. Now, here we see the Lord, and this is the pre-incarnate Christ who has appeared to him because he calls him Lord. He bows before him. This is deity, guys. This is a visitation of God. Jesus always existed. He didn't begin to exist when he was born. This is Jesus, the eternal one right here, standing there. And so he's meeting with uh, Joshua personal way, the same way that, that God met with Moses personal way. And so here we see the first thing is that Joshua has to have this personal encounter with, with, with God right there. Now, it gets bigger than that because the whole thing about revealing God, revealing himself to us, God does it specifically to where we're at in life and to what we need in life. I'm going to tell you something that you already know, and once I say it, you're going to know I've experienced something similar to that. Okay. That's number four. First, God comes to us in a way we need Him. We need Him. We need Him. He calls Him Lord. It's pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus, the eternal one, is standing right there. 
He shows up. Do you remember? God speaks to us specifically. He shows up. When God in Genesis 18 appears to Abraham, he comes to him as a fellow traveler. That's what Abraham needed. When God shows up in the fiery furnace in Daniel, he comes as the fourth man to these people in the fiery furnace. He's a companion in the fire. That's what they needed. Right? When God appears to Jacob at the Jabbok, and he's wrestling with Jacob all night long, he comes to Jacob as a fellow wrestler and wrestling him in submission. That's what Jacob needed. And so here comes the captain, Lord of hosts, holding a sword. And Joshua now knows this is deity. What task is now facing Joshua? It's imminent. It's right before him. What must he do? He's going to lead the nation in battle. They're going to go after the city. They're going to have to go up those hills. They're going to have to go over two walls. This is an enormous task. And so here comes the captain, Lord of hosts, and he says, who are you? He says, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. This is what Joshua needs. He needs God to be this personal warrior on his side. Does that make sense? He shows up in this specific way, the way he needs him. And God does that in our lives. If you ever look at just the names of God, they have certain character qualities of God that God will show up in the way you need Him in your life. Now, one of the things I do, and if you've ever been to any believing, a funeral for a believer that I do, I will almost 99.9% for salvation purposes share this. And because I'm going after salvation. Because when people are at a funeral, life and death is on the line, eternity, they don't think of death until they come to a funeral. Most people don't. I will always share with them the Lazarus story. And, when, and I won't share the whole story because I'll be here another half hour. But when Jesus comes, the sisters have beckoned him to come. And he gets there and, and he planned the whole, Jesus did it on purpose to show up late for Lazarus to be dead, etc. so he could raise him. But when he gets to the house and the first sister runs out, and she says, if you'd been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. In other words, you know, where were you when I needed you? We all have experienced that. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know my brother will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She says, yeah, I believe it. Let's move on. They head toward the house where everybody's crying and mourning. The other sister comes out. She runs out, confronts Jesus, and she asks him the same question. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Huh. But this time, Jesus, instead of giving her answers and things, he just, it says the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept. He cries with her. Because you know she's crying. And so he's just being a, a, a shoulder to cry on. Now I want you to think about that. Because as you read the story, what you realize is Jesus meets each sister's specific need differently. Because everybody's different. To the first sister, he gives theological answers. That's probably what she needed. She needed to know that he's the resurrection of life. She needed to know that her brother will rise again. But for the second sister... He doesn't go into some theological narrative. He just cries with her. He just sits with her. And she probably, her specific need was, I just need somebody here with me. I just need a shoulder to cry on. Because her need is different than the first sister's need. 
And when you look at things like that, what it dawns on you is this. Is that when you're going through whatever you're going through in life, whether it's stepping out in faith or something traumatic happened, God will meet you in the way you need to be met. God will be to you what you need. So here comes Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. Pre-incarnate means pre-carnate, pre-meat, pre-taking flesh. He comes and he says, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. Because Joshua is standing there contemplating the city. How am I going to take it? He doesn't know God's going to drop the walls down. He has no idea of that. But he's a, he's a general. He's a soldier. He's been fighting battles for 40 years in the desert. And so here comes Jesus. He says, I'm the captain, Lord of hosts. And it's exactly what Joshua needed in that moment. He needed God to be a warrior and a fighter on his side as he heads into this monumental task in his mind of taking this city. Because it is monumental in his mind. You and I get to read after the fact. But not Joshua. He has to head right into it. Now, number five, another first. Leaders need to be encouraged. That's another thing we draw from these verses here. God, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up, talks to Joshua, because don't you think he's, remember, Joshua's human. Don't you think he has a little bit of fear and insecurity? I think so. Don't make these people into superhuman people that aren't like you and like me. They're very like nature, same as us. And so this guy, Joshua, he needs to be encouraged because he's heading into this big thing. Now, let me, let me say this with that every time I bring up this point. Our young ministers, they need to be encouraged. You really need to encourage them. I'm an old, battle-tested donkey, okay? I've been through a lot already. So I don't need all the major encouragement. I just need a little bit. No, I just need a little bit. But the young ministers, encourage them. Because I remember what it was like. Because you know what leaders feel? And if you're a leader, you know this. It's very lonely in leadership, is it not? And so you've always got to remember that, that the leadership is lonely. And one of the most loneliest things of a leader is that you're making decisions that affect people. And it weighs on you. It's heavy on you. And so you think about these things. You go to bed with these things. You wake up with these things. And so always encourage the leaders. And when they mess up, say, don't worry, you're going to be okay, man. You're going to be okay. Because everybody messes up, right? So encourage these people. Now, number six, first, do not compromise. Do not compromise. So first things first, another one is, before we go fight this battle is, don't compromise. Don't compromise. You've come all this way. Don't compromise. Now, he asks the man, he asks him, are you for us or are you against us? Great question, huh? I mean, I, I don't know if I'd have the guts to ask the man that, but he did. And what he's really saying is this. You got to pick a side. Pick a side. What side are you going to be on? You're going to be on God's side or you're going to be on the enemy's side? What's it going to be? And so for us following Christ... There is no middle ground. You got to choose which one. Choose, and later on in Joshua 24, choose you whom this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay. I love the fact that um, you got guys like John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, man, can you imagine all the pushback and blowback that guy got from people? Because this guy's laying it out straight. 
He's telling people exactly, this is sin. He's telling Herod and Herodias, you are in sin. You know you were married to his brother. You know you're in sexual relation right now. You're not even married. And he's laying it out and laying it out. And Herod loved to listen to him, but he didn't repent. And John the Baptist, he just, he don't even care how you feel. He's just filleting the flesh, man. He's got strong conviction in these things. And of course, it, it cost him his head. But he's staying strong to his convictions. There was no compromise. And I like what Jesus said about John in Matthew 11. He said this. What did you go out to see preaching out there in the desert? A reed shaken in the wind? In other words, did you go out to see a a preacher that just, whatever wind of whatever blows by, they just bend to this. Did you go out to see that? That's not what drew you there. What drew you there is there's a guy out there preaching the uncompromising word of God and standing firm against the culture and he doesn't care what the culture says but he's slaying it straight and telling you straight the way it is whether you feel like it or not. See, the real question of when a preacher preaches a message is how, you don't ask, how'd you like it? Don't ask him. That's the, that's the wrong question. How do I like the message? No. The real question is, did the message challenge you to live for God or not? That's the real question. Because that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's challenging people. And he's telling it straight right there. But we live in a day, and you you have to be careful of this, where we take Jesus and blend him with everything. You ever notice that? The syncretism in our society? You can't do that. You've got to live this thing. You cannot compromise this thing. Because it's God's word. Because if you compromise it, then it's a matter of, well, I feel and I think. Who cares what you feel and think? Man, you felt and think before you got saved. And now you're saved. Now now you follow the word of God. And that's it, man. That's it. Now, the last verse, number seven. Remember, we are not in charge. And it's easy to forget that, right? I can forget that pretty easy. I'm not in charge. Now, The what? What's going on with Joshua as he talks to the guy? Well, he, um, the Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, the captain of the host, he tells him uh, in verse 15, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, we know that, we remember that from Moses at the burning bush. So here's a replay, and now he's telling Joshua what he told Moses Take your sandals off, because where you're standing is holy ground. But have you ever wondered why you got to take off the sandals? Why you take off the shoes? <coughs> the Old Testament will tell you why you take off the shoes. You're not coming back. Turn to Deuteronomy, just to your left. A little. Deuteronomy 25. You're not coming back to Joshua. We're going to end here. I can't believe this night's already passed so fast. Now watch this. Okay, before I read the verse, um, which you already know because you have notes, but let me say this. Do you, you know the story of Ruth, right? Ruth, um, Boaz, he's the nearest relative, or so we thought, because her husband died. Then we find out there's another nearer relative, and he has, he's the first response. He should, he's responsible now to marry her. That way she's not this person out by herself. And, but the closest relative, he doesn't want to marry her. 
And so they go to the gate of the city. The gate is where the authority took place and transactions and stuff. So they go there as family and stuff. And the closest, nearest relative who doesn't want to marry her, he says, I can't, I've got a wife. But Boaz wants to marry her. He's not the nearest, but he is, he's the, what's called the kinsman redeemer. He's a picture of Jesus. And so the one man gives up his uh, uh, right to marry Ruth, and Boaz steps in. They're following an Old Testament principle here. It's not just like they made that up. Now watch, because now you see the law that God put here in verse 9. I'm only going to read verse 9. You can read all around it when you go home later. And then his brother's wife shall come to him. See, the brother's, the, the husband has died. Now the brother, it's his responsibility to take her as wife. And Jesus told this story when the Pharisees, when the Sadducees asked him a question about heaven. And the Sadducees don't even believe in heaven, but they just try to trap him, trap Jesus. shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off, the one brother that will not marry her, who's now next in line. They'll take his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. Now that'd be a cool transaction, wouldn't it? (laughs) And she, who's being rejected by this person, he won't marry her, shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. So he won't marry her. He's next in line, but he won't take responsibility. Give me your sandal. Takes it, spits in his face. So the sandal's taken off the foot. The shoe is taken off the foot. We find this concept at the burning bush. We find it right here with with Joshua. So what does it mean? What does it tell us? It's a very simple thing. Is that when you remove the shoe and give it up, you're letting go of your authority. You're not in charge anymore. And that's what's happened to Joshua. And that's what happened to Moses. And that's what every Christian needs to finally come to the realization, you're not in charge anymore. I'm not in charge. God's in charge. And I surrender my life to God. And I surrender my life to God's word. So Joshua comes to this moment. And here's why it's so important for Joshua, and for us. Joshua is a soldier. You and I all know how the walls of Jericho are going to fall, right? We know it's a ridiculous plan from an earthly perspective, right? You're going to march around the city with trumpets? Are you kidding? We don't even play the trumpet. And that's how events are going to fall down. So Joshua is learning right now, in this moment... You have to surrender. You're not in charge. Because when we get to Jericho, I know you, Josh. I know you're a a, a general. I know you're a soldier. I know you're a warrior. When I give you the plan, you're going to think that's the stupidest plan I've ever heard in my life. But if if it's going to work, if you're going to take that city, then you're going to do it my way. And you're going to surrender. So take your sandals off, Josh. Give up your rights because you don't own yourself anymore. You don't own you. You don't own your house. You don't own your money. You don't own your retirement. You don't own nothing. I own it all, God says. I own it all. And once we start operating that way, life just gets better. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night and be careful to do all that is written therein. And then and only then will I make you prosperous and successful. 
So take your sandal off, Joshua, and surrender your life right now because we're going in and we're going to take that land now. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so um, always in awe of your word because the way it's all put together and all the pieces when we finally <laughs> get into it and dig it out, it's just, it's beautiful. But thank you, Lord, for that last first. We must first remember that we're, we're not in charge. We must remember that you come to us specifically how we need you. In his case, you're coming as a soldier. As we walk through life, we've got to remember that we are the redeemed. We've been set free, bought out of the slave market of sin and set free forever. We've got to remember not to desire the things of Egypt. The manna was the, the reminder of that. We should desire the things of God. And so, Lord, we are so grateful tonight as we head into this Christmas season that you, a couple thousand years ago, came to visit your people. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.